Well, hey everyone, so glad that you're with us online. Uh, for the past number of weeks, we've been looking at the some of the more unique names of God in Scripture. And if you were with us last week in person, uh, you'll remember that Mariel talked about uh, Jehovah Shalom or Yahweh Shalom and this idea that God wants to bring uh, completeness and wholeness to our lives. Uh, Mariel unpacked a little bit for us what peace looks like um, and the idea of Shalom being this, this completeness that God wants to bring to every area of our lives and I, I think she did a fabulous job. Um, Today, we're actually going to continue in the book of Exodus. If you remember a few weeks ago, we were in uh, Exodus looking at Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals you. But tonight, we're going to land in chapter 17. Um, here we see that Moses has just struck a rock uh, with his staff right before the story we're going to get into tonight to give the Israelites some water to drink. Uh, and yet again, we see that God is providing for his people. But our story for today is Exodus 17, verse 8. So let's go there together. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn there with me. Exodus 17, verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him as he sat. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nisi. He said, for, uh, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Now, in order to understand what's happening here, we need to understand who the Amalekites were. The Amalekites were actually the very first uh, group in the Bible to stand against the nation of Israel. They were the very first nation to come against them. And as their name suggests, they were descendants of a man named Amalek. Well, if you don't know who Amalek is, that's okay. Uh, Amalek was actually the grandson of Esau. If you don't remember who Esau was, if you go back to Genesis 25, you'll remember the story, perhaps, that Esau actually sold his birthright, so all the rights to his father's uh, land, all his inheritance, uh, all the perks that came along with being the oldest in that time, he gave it all the way for a bowl of stew, which has always surprised me a little bit because stew is not that good. But I guess I've never been that hungry before. But that's who Amalek is. He's the grandson of Esau. And what's interesting, though, is that in the book of Malachi, later in the Old Testament, we actually read what God thought of Esau and what God was going to do to Esau's lineage. Um, because as we read there, God actually seems to have a bit of a vendetta against Esau and those that would come after him. So in Malachi 1 verse 3, we read this, But Esau I have hated. I have turned his hill country into wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. 
Now, if we're honest, that seems a little bit strange, doesn't it? <clears throat> that God would hate somebody that much that he would lay waste to his land and give his inheritance and everything that good to give it away to the desert jackals. It's a pretty strong image that God is upset and angry with who Esau is. And it's pretty condemning of the lineage that would follow Esau, which we know that Amalek was. And one of the questions that I had when I first came across this um, years ago was, how is it that God could hate somebody? You know, most of us know God as a God of love, of compassion, mercy, and grace. And really that's the God that's preached often and talked about often. But this God that has this anger and even hatred towards somebody is not really discussed a whole lot. And so as I've kind of been thinking and praying and researching this a little bit, I've kind of come across this idea that the hatred and the anger that God feels towards Esau and towards those that would follow him actually represents the anger and the hatred that God has towards Satan and his demonic powers. And what we see is, is that the Amalekites are actually a representation of the devil's hostility towards Jesus and his church. The scripture that we read today uh, ends with this phrase that they, speaking of the Amalekites, have raised their fist against the Lord's throne. In fact, we see the Amalekites show up many times in the Old Testament and every single time they come against God, God's people of Israel. Every time the Amalekites show up, they are thwarting and threatening to destroy the people of Israel. They stand in the way of God's plan. And in fact, right up until the birth of Jesus, to tie this all together, we see that Satan actually works actively against uh, the lineage that would eventually lead to the Messiah. The enemy did everything possible in the Old Testament to wipe out the people that would eventually lead to Jesus. From the very beginning, if you remember in the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, um, Satan knew exactly what God's promises were. Because if you remember in the Garden, God actually speaks to Adam and Eve and he tells them that one of Adam's descendants would actually come forth to crush the serpent's head, the serpent representing Satan in that story. The devil also heard about what happened on Mount Moriah. If you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who will provide, Satan was there and he knew that this sacrificial ram that God provided to uh, stop Isaac from sacrificing his son actually represented Jesus. Satan knew that that sacrificial lamb represented Jesus and he was fully aware that what God had told Abraham later that all of humankind would be blessed through his family. You see, in other words, Satan knew that eventually the lineage from Adam and Abraham and Moses would lead to the Messiah, Jesus, coming. And that's why Satan declared war on God's throne. He was determined to do battle against the coming Messiah before he ever showed up. It was really a series of preemptive strikes. So we have to understand this when we look at the story and when we read what's happening here in Exodus, that the Amalekites were being used by the enemy to destroy God's people. Wipe them out so there was no possibility of this Messiah ever coming. So here's the problem. As people who want to follow Jesus, so that's me, maybe you watching this, you know, people that want to put Jesus first in our lives and follow him, we need to understand that, that when we do that, it seems like the enemy paints something on our backs that looks just like a target. He wants to come after us. 
And the reality is, is that it's never going to change. The battle will continue until the end of time when Jesus comes back and, and like we read in Revelation 21, institutes the new heaven and the new earth where there will be no more suffering and no more tears and, and no more anguish. But instead, things will be made right the way that they're supposed to be. But you know that we're not there yet, right? So it makes me wonder about this life, that if there's this enemy that's actively working against us, what, what in this world are we supposed to do about that? Because scripture is clear that following God is actually better than the alternative. We see that. He gives us hope and peace. He, he bestows compassion upon us. It seems like he walks with us as we read the New Testament and as we read scripture as a whole. We see that God never leaves us. But we also understand that, that scripture is clear that it's not easier following God. It's, it's rather obvious, I think, that when the enemy puts something in our way, it makes us feel discouraged and defeated. I mean, let me say it this way. When you're trying to live your best life, and I mean actually your best life, not the, your Instagram filter with your Birkenstocks and your iced coffee from Starbucks, but actually your best life in the sense of you're putting Jesus first. You're pursuing him with everything you have. You're, you're making an effort to get into your Bible daily. You're making an effort to pray and to listen to the movement of God. When you seek his will for your life, when you're doing those things, and then something just comes out of nowhere and it just slaps you and it makes life seem so difficult. It makes us wonder, if we're being honest, what is the point? What's the point of following God if it just means that Satan can still get at us and life can still hurt and be difficult? You know, we look up to heaven and we cry out, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you letting these bad things happen? But I want to I want to point something out to you today. We know that ultimately the enemy doesn't win. We know that ultimately Satan it does not win the war. We, we know that the, the, the war is ours as followers of Jesus. We just need to read the end of scripture and see that God comes back and he makes all things right. But you know for a fact if you're a human and you've been alive for even five minutes that, the, that Satan actually sometimes wins the battles, doesn't he? Maybe it's your resolve to stop looking at pornography. And you try really hard and you're working hard not to do it anymore and you fail and you fall back into it. Maybe it's your desire to be more generous with either your time or resources or even money. But that draw to take care of yourself is so strong. Maybe it's one of a million other things that you're trying to do on your own and you continue to fail. And it's things that crop up in your life that make you realize that you're doing your best, but the enemy keeps getting in the way. I want you to catch something as you're watching this. When the enemy puts something in your way, it's meant to distract you from what God's doing. Let me say it another way. When the enemy is actively working against you, it's because you're on the verge of breakthrough. Now, I don't mean that in that hopeful sense that like, just hang in there, everything's going to be okay. I mean it in the sense of, in my own life, as I've walked as a follower of Jesus, I've seen over and over again that right when things seem like they just can't get any worse, they usually do. (laughs) 
But then there's a moment where God comes through and things either make sense or at the very least I begin to understand that God's working and I see his hand working in my life. And it's in those moments where it just feels so dark and heavy. Can I just encourage you that you are on the verge of a breakthrough. You are on the verge if you keep pressing into who Jesus is. If you keep showing up and, and working hard. I know it sometimes it feels like it's in vain. But let me promise you that it's not. Because there is an enemy that is trying to derail God's plan for your life. And his hope is, is that he can just distract you long enough that you stop caring. And I know that because it's happened in my own life. When the enemy puts something in your way, it's meant to distract you from what God is doing and what God has planned. And so I want to ask you, and I want to encourage you, after you listen to this and, and we spend this time together, begin to look at your life and ask the question, what is the enemy doing right now in my life that is trying to distract me from what God's doing? What's going on in your life right now that maybe could be the enemy working against you? Maybe you've made bad choices. Absolutely, there, there are consequences for the decisions that we make. But what is happening right now that maybe is outside of your control? And once you identify those things, you can begin to see that maybe God's got a bigger plan. And this is just meant to distract you. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's loneliness or depression or anxiety. Maybe you're broke financially or physically. Maybe it's your addiction to pornography or drugs or alcohol. Or maybe it's a past addiction that you've kicked but it just never stops calling your name. What is the enemy doing in your life right now that is meant to distract you from God's plan? That's meant to derail God's plan for your life? Answering that question is really important because if we live our whole lives just believing that every bad thing is coming straight from God, we are going to live our entire lives with an incomplete view of who this God is that we talk about and that we read about in Scripture. This account in Exodus teaches us some things about the character of God. But it also teaches us about our identity. But there's one major point that I want us to walk away with today. If you watch this video, please let this be the one thing that sticks with you. Surrendering to God is the only way to win. I know that sounds a little bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? In order to ensure your victory, you must submit and surrender. But that's exactly what's happening in this story. If you remember every time that Moses lowers his hands, Joshua and the Israelites begin to lose the battle. And people often interpret this surrender that I'm talking about, this surrendering to God is the only way to win, in one of two ways. They either align themselves with Joshua and this idea that we need to surrender our, uh, ourselves so that we can enter battle and we can fight. And I want to tell you that that's true. There's nothing wrong with that. Like a few weeks ago, we talked about this idea that we need to step out in faith so that God can step up. Many times in our, our, our faith walk, there's this, there's this give and take. It's we need to take that step so that God can, God can show up. But there's something else that's happening here. This idea that Moses represents us and our need to surrender ourselves to God's will. 
to raise our hands toward heaven and say, God, I can't do it by myself. I need you. But I want to point out a couple of things. The first is this. Uh, this is the very first time that we've been introduced to Joshua in the Bible. And that may not seem like that big of a deal, but it's a rather startling introduction. Moses talks to Joshua as if we know who he is. He comes out of nowhere. He's got no background. There's no story leading up to Joshua. It's just all of a sudden he's there and he's the leader of Israelites or the Israelite army. But something that's interesting about Joshua is his name actually means Jehovah is our help. Or more accurately, Jehovah is our salvation. Joshua shows up out of nowhere and is instrumental in completing God's will in defeating the Amalekites that day. But catch this. It was Moses' faith and surrender that allowed Joshua to win the battle. That's important to hold on to. And we're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. But there's more. After the Israelites get the big W over the Amalekites, Moses builds an altar to the Lord and he calls it Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is my banner. And that's really a strange name for God and that's part of this series as we're looking at some of the more unique names of God in scripture. And so what does it mean? Well, if you grew up in church, maybe you remember an old song that went something, uh, you know, like his banner is love and it flies over me. Um, you know, I'm not going to sing it because I can't really remember it, but you, you might. But the point is, I remember growing up and thinking about a banner this way. Well, let me ask you, what do you think a banner is when you think of a banner? I know for me, I used to think about a flag. But then as I grew a little bit older, I started to think, well, a banner is not really a flag. A banner is kind of two poles with a piece of fabric in between with something written on it. Maybe it's a war, a war flag or a war banner or something like that. But I've learned as I've grown and as I've spent more time reading this stuff that a banner during this time was actually very different. It wasn't anything like that at all. A banner was actually normally a bare wooden pole with a shining ornament on it. And the reason why it was so shiny was this idea that it was supposed to glisten and capture light and, and capture your attention because it was supposed to remind you of something that God had done. It was meant to remind you of a miracle or a new standard that had been set. It was something that was to draw your attention and remind you of something. Why does this matter? Well, in the book of Numbers, I'm going to unpack a couple of things here, so stay with me. In the Old Testament book of Numbers, we see the story of Moses and the Israelites who were, again, hungry and thirsty. This is a theme if you read uh, especially the first five books of the Old Testament. The Israelites are hungry and thirsty and they complain and they want God to do something and they, they feel like God has left them and they become mean to Moses and, and to each other. And just a quick side note, if you ever find yourself in a position where you're grumpy and maybe you're being rude to the people that you love, you might just be hungry or thirsty. I think that there's just little nuggets in the, in the scripture that teaches us things. That's one of them. You could be hangry or thirsty. Just take a minute, grab a granola bar. You'll be okay. But the point is, is in this story, the Israelites are upset. And so they uh, complain to God. And at this point, God doesn't just show up and give them water and food. God actually, at this point, seems rather upset. He actually sends venomous snakes among the people. And these venomous snakes begin to bite the Israelites and the Israelites start to die. It's a pretty intense, actually, story. 
So the people actually, to their benefit, and they actually repent. And they come to Moses and they repent of their complaining and their ignorant ways. And so God tells Moses to do something. He tells Moses to make a banner. He says this, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses did it and the people lived. The point? The banner was an instrument of unleashing God's power to restore life. It was something that was to draw their attention towards the reality that God was able to produce miracles and God alone was the one who was able to supply their needs. So in the New Testament, we come across a really interesting little verse that is often looked over and it's John 3, 14 and 15. We all know John 3, 16 and that's the one that we focus on but John 3, 14 and 15 tells us this. It says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, this is calling back that story in Numbers we just talked about, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Here, John is saying that just as the banner in the desert, the pole with a snake on it, was lifted to allow God to restore life, so Jesus would be lifted on a pole is what the, what the language here says. Just as Jesus is to be raised on a pole, would give life eternally. You have this comparison to what was once the banner that allowed God to restore life to this new pole to say that Jesus will be raised on a cross and he will give life eternally, completely, and perfectly. So as we look back on the story of Moses and Joshua in the Israelites versus the Amalekites, we begin to see it through a different lens. And that's why it's important to read our Bibles, is because we begin to connect these dots. And this story is this meta-narrative that's beautiful and intertwined in such complex and beautiful ways. Joshua in this story, let me suggest this. That Joshua is actually a representation of Jesus. And you and me are Moses. Our willingness to submit to God, to surrender ourselves, allows Jesus to fight our battles on our behalf. And that is a beautiful, beautiful truth. Somebody listening right now, somebody watching this video right now needs to know that your victory over whatever it is you're facing is on the other side of your surrender to God. Your victory over every challenge, Every disease, every difficulty is on the other side of your surrender to God. And that's not to say that you're going to win every battle. We know that we won't. But it's to say that ultimately we will win the war. And we will win knowing that God is on our side and knowing that our surrender to God allows Jesus to go forward and to win the battle on our behalf. There's a reason why military descriptions are used throughout Scripture to describe our faith. It's not, because, it's not because God wants to praise the idea of war, but it's to signify the reality that we're fighting against the darkness of evil itself. If we go towards the New Testament again, we read what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. He says to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Notice that Paul here says to put on the full armor of God. And he goes on to explain what that is in the, in the following verses. He says, therefore, again, put on the full armor of God, this, this military garb, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to still stand. And then he says again, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And I want to point out something to you that you may have not noticed before. In this list, there is nothing on your back. Now scholars have noticed, noted this for many years that it's strange because if you look at early Roman and early Palestinian uh, armor, if you, uh, you look at what was happening at that time, virtually every piece of armor had something on your back. And the reason why was so that in battle, if you had to retreat and run away, your back wasn't exposed to flying arrows. Well, Here's my hot take on that. When we put our faith in and submit to God, we release Jesus to fight our battles in front of us, but friends, God is standing behind us. There's no need for retreat. Paul tells us here to stand firm even after the day of evil comes, to still stand. He says it three separate times in one and a half sentences, to stand firm and that we will stand firm. There's no need for retreat. No matter what you're facing today, no matter what you're going through, there's no reason to retreat because we know that as we surrender to God, there is Jesus Christ in front of us and there is God behind us fighting our battles. Friends, we know that this life is difficult. And we know that things don't always work out the way that we think they should. But we have a God who stands behind us and promises us that if we just surrender to him, we raise our arms and say, God, I need you. That there is a man and a God named Jesus Christ who goes into battle on our behalf, just like Joshua and when Jesus fights our battles, we cannot lose. Even if we die, we cannot lose. Because we know ultimately that the promise and the hope that we have in this life comes from Jesus Christ. So whatever you're facing today, let me encourage you. Press into the heart of the Father. Surrender yourself to him. And remember that no matter what you are facing, if you surrender, Jesus will fight your battles on your behalf. And maybe you're watching this video and you've made it this far and thank you for joining us. And maybe you have some questions about faith. I'm going to include my email address in the description below and I want you to reach out. I would love to journey with you in this and to walk alongside you as you make those steps to maybe ask some questions about who Jesus is or maybe you're ready to make a commitment and you just need somebody to walk with you. I would be honored to do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that no matter what we're facing today, that we can be certain that you reign supreme over it all. And I pray for anyone watching this video right now, God, 
whether it's now or months in the future or whenever it is, Father, that, that you would remind them and you would speak your promises over their life that you have not forgotten them and that all it takes is their surrender to your will, their surrender to your power that releases Jesus to fight the battles on our behalf. Because we know, God, that the, 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 the battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's actually against the rulers of darkness. And Father, if we're to believe what Scripture says, that there is a God in heaven, then we must also believe what the Scriptures say about the enemy, that he prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for those that he can devour. But yet we know, God, that you are more mighty and that you are more powerful and Father, that you don't need to defeat the enemy with anything other than the love that you showed through your sacrifice of Jesus on the cross so long ago. We love you, God. Would you walk with us? We're so grateful for the opportunity to know you and for the hope and the peace that you bring our lives. We thank you, Father. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.